This morning, we're continuing our extensive and exclusive reports of the Atlanta child murders, where 29 children and young adults were murdered in Atlanta between 1979 to 1981. Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. And I'm your girl, Gina. In our first episode, we meticulously examined the lives and tragic faith of the victims, leaving one notable absence in our narrative, Nathaniel Cater. Today, we delve deeper into the heart-wrenching story, ensuring that no stone is left unturned as we confront the unsettling truth behind this notorious case as we navigate through the intricate web of events that transpired during the dark chapters in atlanta's history we are compelled to confront the lingering questions that continue to haunt us from the harrowing experiences of those who narrowly escaped the clutches of wayne williams to the heart-wrenching testimony of the community grappling with fear and uncertainty every detail serves as a poignant reminder of the enduring impact of those heinous crimes. In this episode, we shine a spotlight on Nathaniel Cater, ensuring that his story is not overshadowed by the weight of his tragedy. We also hear from a compelling voice, someone who claims to have nearly escaped the fate that befell so many others at the hands of Wayne Williams. So join me as I take a journey through the arrest capture questioning the prime suspect grappling with the complexities of justice and the quest of foreclosure in the wake of unspoken tragedy this is a tale of resilience perseverance and the unwavering determination to seek answers in the fate of darkness this is friday true crime podcast and this is the second installment of echoes of innocence the atlanta child murders So we left off in part one on May 12, 1981, when they found William Barnett. So now we're going to the early mornings of May 22nd, while police were staking out the James Jackson Parkway Bridge spanning the Chattahoochee River, a spot where multiple bodies were found. They heard a splash suggesting something had been thrown from the bridge into the water down below. And the first car to exit the bridge after the splash at 2.50 a.m. belonged to Wayne Williams. Okay, so who is Wayne Williams? Wayne Williams was born Wayne Bertram Williams on May 27, 1958 to Faye and Homer Williams. They stayed together until death. He was raised in the Dixie Hill neighborhood in Southwest Atlanta. Both were educators and it was believed that they spoiled Wayne because he was the only child and there's no proof of alcohol, drugs, or abuse in the household. He attended and graduated from Frederick Douglass High School. He was a consistent A student. Wayne preferred to spend time alone. He was occasionally bullied, but because of his quick wit and the ability to play the dozens, he was able to earn respect from the bullies. If you really knew where the dozens come from, you wouldn't want to be laughing about it. Listen to this. The expression dozens comes from slave auctions. If they didn't think you were prime quality, you were sold by the dozen. Well, I know I wouldn't be in that group. 
He graduated at the top of his class. He was described as quiet, helpful, intelligent, respectful, with an above average IQ. None of his teachers had anything negative to say about Wayne Williams. After graduating, instead of using his many scholarships to go anywhere he wanted to go, he decided to stay at home and study business and finances at Georgia State University in 1976 and become an entrepreneur. Wayne also got interested in radio and journalism and constructed his own carrier courier transmission radio station in his parents' basement and began frequenting radio stations like WIGO and WAOK, where he befriended a number of announcer crews and also began dabbling in becoming a pop music producer and manager. He was interested in creating a boy group like the Jackson 5. Who wasn't? A carrier current transmission was originally called wired wireless, which employs guided low-powered radio station signals, which are transmitted among electrical currents and transmitters along electrical conductors. The transmitters are then picked up by the receiver that are either connected to the conductor or a short distance from them. This is really a very long way of saying that Wayne Williams was close to being a genius. He did all of this at the age of 14 years old. Wayne Williams claimed to be a member of the National Honor Society and part of the Junior ROTC program, but there's no evidence of that. He also told people that he was an Air Force fighter pilot and trained in high school for the CIA. He said that the CIA offered him and a few other black guys in high school to train in hand-to-hand -hand combat and how to kill someone with a chokehold. But when asked in a CNN 2010 interview, he didn't elaborate and he just shut the interview down. He was once arrested for impersonating a police officer in 1976 right after graduating high school, but the charges were dropped. Wayne Williams was a 5'9", 23-year-old black man that weighed a probably about 185 pounds. He had thick glasses looking more like a computer tech than a serial killer. And like I said earlier, serial killers were more known to be middle-aged white men at this time. It was also rumored that Wayne Williams could have been gay, but no man has ever come forward saying that they have been with Wayne and only one woman ever admitted being involved with him. To investigators, his sexuality is ambiguous and say that he may have been asexual. So back to May 22nd, 1981, after they heard the splash in the Chattahoochee River, they observed a car making two U-turns before exiting the bridge. And when they stopped them, the first thing Wayne Williams said was, I know this is about those boys, right? Officers observed Wayne Williams to be agitated and nervous that night. And when they asked what was he doing on the bridge at this time of the night, he said that he was going to check on an address in the neighboring town that belonged to a Cheryl Johnson. Cheryl Johnson, Wayne said, was one of his artists that he was going to check on in the neighboring neighborhood. So he gave them Cheryl's name and phone number and come to find out the name and the phone number were fake. Later, when asked about this night, Wayne said, quote, I was just driving over the bridge to see what activities I could see because I was just curious to what I could see over in that area. During that stop, they put a tracker on Wayne Williams' car unknowingly to him and told them that they were going to keep an eye on him, and they let him go. 
they didn't have any evidence. So, two days later, on May 24, 1981, the nude body of Nathaniel Cater, who had been missing for four days and was last seen holding hands with Wayne Williams by Robert I. Henry, was discovered in the river. The medical examiner ruled his death a probable asphyxiation, but never really said that he was strangled. Police thought that that's what Wayne Williams was doing when he was caught on the bridge. Cater's last known address was 2261 Verbena Street in northwest Atlanta. We don't know when he was last seen alive. He was found Sunday in the Chattahoochee near the I-285 bridge. He had been dead several days. Cater died just a couple of weeks before his 28th birthday which makes him by far the oldest victim. But police don't think whoever is killing the young people is now choosing victims at random. Again, we do not believe at this point, based upon what we know, that there is a random picking up of people. What we have to determine is what is that characteristic that tie everyone together, the ones, everyone being those who have become, become victims. What is the common characteristic? Brown would not say, but Cater breaks the pattern in more than one way. He was not retarded or slow as the other adult victims were. Cater's case breaks the pattern in another way. The police did not release his name right away. Since he had not been reported missing, they thought it might help to delay releasing the name. We made a decision because there was a necessity for two things. One, a continuous verification and also for some preliminary investigative activities that we uh, made the decision to make the name known today. Brown would not say if delaying release of the name had done any good. Paul Miller, Action News. After they found Nathaniel's body on June 3, 1981, they called Wayne Williams in for questioning. They questioned him for six hours, and he took a polygraph test, and he failed it. So they offered him a second and third polygraph test, and he failed those as well. But because they're inadmissible in court, that's neither here nor there. They had to let him go. Again, they had no evidence. But they put him on a 24-hour surveillance. So after Wayne Williams was released, he called a press conference. So under the 24-hour surveillance, they noticed that Wayne Williams and his father was doing a deep cleaning of the house, cutting the grass, taking out large bags filled with garbage, and burning something in the backyard. And when neighbors asked them what were they burning, they never answered. They just ignored them. And this was unusual about this family. And when the police found out, they just assumed that they were destroying evidence. So they got a search warrant for the home. Things began to get interesting around 9.30 last night when the FBI agents and the representative of the special task force emerged from a house in northwest Atlanta. They had executed a court-approved search warrant and came away with items they hoped to link with evidence collected at some of the crime scenes. Things like purple and yellow cloth, a piece of yellow blanket, a piece of green carpet fiber, purple thread, and dog hairs. We soon learned that the 23-year-old man who lived with his parents in the house had been taken into custody by the FBI around three Wednesday afternoon. After 12 hours of interrogation, Public Safety Commissioner Lee Brown told waiting reporters that the man had been released and no arrest made. What the reporters on hand did not know was that Brown was creating a diversion for the man and his father to leave the building. While they may have left relatively undetected, they were met by a crowd of reporters at their home. I had been invited inside by the man's mother and spoke to the family about the ordeal and the questions of guilt or innocence that were being raised. 
At 7 a.m., three and a half hours after returning home, the young man conducted a news conference, setting the condition that he would not be shown and that his name not be used. You will hear him, but you will see reporters and photographers. He contended that he was being harassed prior to his detainment, intimidated during his custody, and pressured to confess to crimes he says he did not commit. They openly said, you killed Nathaniel Cater, and you know it, and you're lying to us. They said that. And they said it on a number of occasions. They said it on that night. Uh, one of the task force captains on the scene pointed his finger at me and said it, and said he was tired of all the uh, BS about working the long hours, working the stakeouts, and that he was ready to pull the thing to an end. The man admits to voluntarily taking a polygraph test and, according to the examiner, answering key questions deceptively. But he contends he did not fail it. The man is free. No arrests have been made. But he expects to be kept under surveillance at least until the state crime lab processes the new evidence. This man is not standing still. He is considering a suit against law enforcement officials for mistreatment and against certain news organizations for disclosing his name. Mark Picard, Action News Tonight. On June 21, 1981, Wayne Williams was arrested at his home where he lived with his parents for the murder of Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater. After weeks of surveillance on the Penelope Street house, police arrested Wayne Bertram Williams. That fiber evidence led to his conviction on two counts of murder. His parents maintained their son's innocence. He's wondering why the real killers or suspects that they hate have not been apprehended. He still maintains his interest and say he has never killed or harmed a person. And considering he's been confined one year ago today, he's in, he's in good spirits. Williams himself is settling into a routine inside the Fulton County Jail. He is reading, he is writing letters, and he is writing his diary. On January 6, 1982, his trial started in Fulton County. It lasted two months. During this time, prosecutors matched 19 victims to Wayne Williams through fiber analysis from his home, car, bedspread, bathroom, gloves, clothes, carpet, and dog. Other evidence, including witnesses, testified that placed Wayne Williams with several victims while they were alive and his own account was inconsistent with his whereabouts. So let me just say this, throughout this whole case, Wayne Williams' name never was brought up. He never was a suspect. His name never was on the suspect list until he got arrested that night. When they released his name, that's when the witnesses started coming out saying his name. February 27, 1982, after 12 hours of deliberation, the jury found Wayne Williams guilty, but only on the murders of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. He was sentenced to life in prison, and after he became a suspect, the killings stopped. In March 1982, the task force to investigate the deaths of the rest of the murders was dismantled. As of today, those cases still remain unsolved. And when Mayor Jackson was asked, why aren't they going to continue to investigate these murders, Mayor Jackson said that he didn't want to waste the money to continue the investigation for these children. In December 1983, Wayne Williams filed an appeal and it was denied. In the late 1900s, Wayne Williams filed a habeas corpus petition and requested a retrial, and that also was denied by Supreme Court Judge Hal Craig. The Georgia Attorney General Thurbert Baker said, although this does not end the appeal process, I am pleased with the habeas corpus case. 
In 2004, it was a theory that Wayne Williams sought a retrial again with his attorney arguing that the law enforcement officers covered up evidence of individuals by the KKK and that carpet fiber purportedly linked to him would not stand to scientific scrutiny. It was also rejected on October 17, 2004 by a federal judge. KK to the Atlanta child murders. We got a call from a man claiming he was one of the informants in that investigation. And after vetting his identity, we sat down with him to hear for the first time why this insider believes the investigation is far from over. What compelled you after all these years to come forward? Um, is it something that's been weighing heavy on your heart? I'm getting ready to die. Just that simple. This is a man we'll refer to as Larry. We're keeping his identity undercover because he fears retribution for what he's about to reveal. He says he lived a double life as a Klan member during the top secret KKK investigation called the 8100 file. Nearly 40 years ago, the investigation looked into controversial claims that suggested the Klan could be responsible for the Atlanta Chow murders. This is the most heinous crimes committed in the nation, killing those kids. What harm did they do anybody? None. The missing and murdered children, as always. Stuck with you. Did anyone ever ask you, why do you care about these black children? A lot of agents have asked me, why do you care? They're I hate that word with a passion. I'm repeating what was told to me. I meant no personal animosity whatsoever towards it. Is that a word you used, or was that ever part of your vocabulary? Never was. You can't address someone civil, and with respect, don't address them at all. Documents state that investigators had at least two strategically placed sources. Larry says he became one after a Klan member approached him. And he uh, asked me if I wanted to join the Klan. And so he did, as an undercover agent. Then I was asked to be the bodyguard of the Grand Dragon. As Larry shared his story, he outlined in details information about the individuals profiled in the KKK investigation. After four or five meetings, uh, the missing and murdered children come up. And we got to get them we got to start a war that's exactly what the 8100 file details within the documents law enforcement officials explain that the investigation was kept secret and sealed away from the public due to fears it would cause a race riot 11 alive first reported on the 8100 file back in 1986 and we uncovered it recently clans wasn't after uh, girls they were after males because males could cause a lot of problems when they got big, when they growed up. Larry says he wore an audio recorder which could record up to 10 hours. Documents show the audio recordings were approved by authorities. You gotta find a lot of records was intentionally destroyed by these agencies. They didn't want the public to know. He's right. We confirmed that all audio recordings, including those wiretaps, were destroyed. When Wayne Williams was convicted of two, I said, oh, we quit. This is it, we can close it out. 
The GBI helped lead the original KKK investigation. A spokesperson says they destroyed the evidence once agents dismissed a link to the Klan. Documents also state that APD was also involved in the 8100 file. They told us, quote, our investigators have not encountered any files outlining KKK involvement. Larry also recalls details about the boy mentioned in the files. Luby Jeter, who one day bumped his go-kart into a Klan member's car. They referred to him as a kid had run into a car, a truck or something with a, a four-wheeler, a go-kart or something. And on February 5th, 1981, Luby Jeter was found dead. I hope they find justice. They're still human, they still bleed, and uh, they hurt. And as far as reopening the case, he thinks nothing new will surface. I do not believe they're going to get anywhere. I guess only time will tell, right? Time will tell. I could hear it in your voice and in your emotions that this is a story that has stayed with you. I can't do nothing for him. Uh, let's drop it. Wayne Williams was never tried for the other murders of the Atlanta child murders. However, police attribute 22 other deaths, including those of 18 minors, to Wayne Williams with no evidence. So technically, those cases are still unsolved. On November 20th, 2019, Wayne Williams was again denied parole. In 2021, Isaac Rogers came public and said that he escaped Wayne Williams when he was seven years old. Isaac Rogers says he's finally sharing what happened to him nearly 40 years ago. Around the same time, his brother went missing. His brother was a victim during the Atlanta child murders, and he says he almost became one. They got the right guy. That was one of the most frightening times in my life, which automatically means you are going to uh, be very detailed in what you're observing, and you're going to remember this person's face. Nearly 40 years ago, Isaac Rogers says he walked to a neighbor's apartment with his two cousins, and as they were walking out, it turned into a nightmare. As we got ready to exit her porch and walk down the stairs, that's when the guy that I now know of is Wayne Williams stepped from behind the wall to block us off from going down the stairs. He says his two cousins got away, which left him by himself. The only thing I could do was to turn back around, which is what I did. I went back and I started to beat on Ms. William May's door to get her to open the door. Isaac Rogers says Wayne Williams was still approaching him when the neighbor came to the door. Uh, which is how I was able to tell in such detail everything he was wearing. He says he's kept this secret for years because of fear. I feel great now because I had a chance to share my secret with the rest of the world. Isaac Rogers says he doesn't know if Wayne Williams killed all the victims, but he says that's his brother's killer. 16-year-old Patrick Rogers, who went missing after he walked Isaac to his school bus on November of 1980. Yeah, it's such a shame that he was, uh, he was robbed of his potential. Investigators say evidence connected Williams to the Atlanta child murders, but he was sentenced to life in prison for killing two adults. Williams wrote a letter this week proclaiming his innocence once again after the city recently announced it was re-examining evidence in the cases to bring families some closure. Isaac Rogers says he doesn't buy Williams' story. Well, it's almost 40 years and he's still the same conniving, manipulative person that he's always been. Uh, as far as writing letters, that doesn't mean anything. He says he's thrilled the city will now build a memorial for all the victims, a request from a grieving mother that 11 Alive brought to the city's attention. It gives us an opportunity to know that it's documented. 
it will be documented in history that the world won't forget about the travesty that took place here. And he has one suggestion for the memorial. That photo should be one of the main centerpieces for the memorial so that each family will know that, hey, we, we, we grieve with you. So now I got a question for you. Do you think that Wayne Williams is guilty or innocent? Do you think he was doing all of these killings or do you think it was multiple suspects? Make sure you comment below or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Me, myself, I don't think Wayne Williams did all of these murders. I don't think that he did any of these murders. I just think that he's a liar and he really wanted to be important. He wanted to feel important. Wayne Williams, he had a police scanner. So he used to listen to the police scanner and he heard at one time one of the victims had an accident and they hurt themselves over the police scanner. He got to the location where the boy was before the police did and he ended up taking the boy to the hospital. If he heard that over the police scanner, wouldn't he have heard that they were going to stake out the bridge that day? Because they were there for a couple of months. I just want to hear what y'all got to say about it, what y'all think about this, because this is a lot. I couldn't imagine being in Atlanta during this time. The next time Wayne Williams will be eligible for parole will be November 2024. In conclusion, the second part of the Atlanta child murders narrative underscores the enduring impact of these tragic events on both victims, family and the wider community. Despite decades passing since the crimes occurred, the pursuit for justice and closure remains paramount. As we reflect on the unresolved questions and complexities of the investigation, it's clear that the continued dialogue, advocacy, and support are essential in honoring the memories of the lives lost and in addressing the underlying systematic issues that contributed to this dark chapter in Atlanta's history. Moving forward, it is crucial to prioritize comprehensive efforts aimed at healing, accountability, and preventing similar tragedies from occurring in the future. Today on our missing segment, we're featuring Donna Peters. Donna is a 43-year-old white female, 5'5", 158 pounds, brown, straight hair, and brown eyes. She was last seen on December 14, 2023 on Lorraine and Denison Avenue wearing blue jeans and a gray hoodie. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Donna Peters, please contact the Cleveland Police Department at 216 216- 623-2536 or clevelandmissing.org let's help bring Donna Peters home to her family I would like to thank all of the following for the resources for this episode boy was it a lot made for tv the Atlanta child murders the book child killer the true story of the Atlanta child murdered by Jack Rosewood this isn't the first book that I read of his the following YouTube channels I use for inserts of these episodes. Worldly Tunes, CNN, 11 Alive, Obscure Citizen, Foggy Melton, Wikipedia.com, Webley.com, and Findagrave.com. And on every episode, I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases 
and remember the victims who were affected. So with that being said, Donuts, please stay safe, stay vigilant, and always, always, always trust your instincts. Oh my goodness, this was a lot. Bye-bye. Later.